Let's pray together. Our Lord, we come to you this morning uh, in great need of your word and for life-giving truth. Uh, we have heard many voices in the world try to speak truth to us, and we often even hear the voice of the enemy try to whisper lies into our hearts and into our minds. And so this morning, we pray that by your spirit, those things would be silenced and that we would have ears to hear the word of God, that it would speak to our hearts, that it would convict and cut and build up and encourage and lift up in a way that we need today. We need your word. We are desperate for it. There's no other voice that we need here today but God's. And so do your work, O Holy Spirit, in our hearts. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a young German pastor who lived during the reign of Hitler's Nazi Germany. Uh, he's a well-known pastor and uh, theologian. During that time, uh, in Nazi Germany, pastors in Germany were required to sign an agreement that placed their churches under the rule uh, and authority of the Third Reich. Uh, it was a requirement they p placed on German pastors to do that throughout their rule. Uh, they were being coerced to sign a vow of allegiance, uh, essentially to the uh, awful and oppressive Nazi state. And in great disappointment, over time, as the pressure grew, most German pastors actually signed the vow to save their own lives. Uh, and it was a great disappointment, but one man, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, among many who were his colleagues, uh, chose not to sign the vow, not to sign this allegiance, uh, even though he had the rest of his life ahead of him. He was 39 years old. The rest of his life ahead of him, recently engaged to the love of his life, growing in global popularity. This man refused to sign this vow. And just like that, with all the things that were happening for him, just like that, his life of following Jesus becomes a never-ending, long night of affliction. Soon, Bonhoeffer is sought out by the Gestapo, he is imprisoned. He's eventually even taken to a concentration camp. And it was from his own prison cell that he penned words like this. In me there is darkness. I am lonely. I am feeble in heart. I am restless. In me there is bitterness. God, I do not understand your ways. Can I ask you this morning, uh, what makes a man or a woman... Stay the course in following Jesus when darkness befalls them. Uh, or even further than that, what makes a person not only stay the course to follow Jesus, but to do gospel ministry, to actually proclaim the gospel amid a life filled with pain and even with doubt? Uh, what enables a person to stay the course? Because not only did Bonhoeffer stay the course following Jesus until he was eventually hung in April of 1945 at the Flossenburg concentration camp, but even from his prison cell, not only did he stay the course to follow Jesus, but he was speaking to the gospel to prison mates and comforting with them with the love and hope of God. In prison, from prison, this man staying the course and proclaiming the gospel. Now, you and I may never be put behind iron bars or be given a death sentence like this man has. Most of us likely will never be there. But as we look back down the corridor of Christian history and even all the way to this very present moment, perhaps even in your life right now, 
The road that has been walked by Christians in following Jesus throughout history down to this very moment is one that is fraught with pain and with tears and a lot of disappointment. It is not an easy road following Jesus. So I ask again, why stay this wearisome and grueling course of following Jesus and doing gospel ministry? I don't mean the gospel ministry of a pastor behind a pulpit. I mean the everyday lives that you and I live as we seek to follow Jesus and bring the gospel to bear in the lives of people who don't know Jesus. How can we possibly keep pressing on what seems like a dark and winding road that will never end? Well, I think our passage in Acts that Charlie read for us this morning will show us a man in Paul. Show us a man in Paul who is seeking to follow Jesus. He really is seeking to follow Jesus. He is seeking to do gospel ministry. But he's weary. He's in pain. He is spent. And this morning, as we consider Paul's own journey, I think we can find some really encouraging things as we seek to stay on the course ourselves of following Jesus, of doing gospel ministry, even here at Seven Mile Road. I think there's some really good words for us from Acts 18 this morning. And so, turn with me there if you're not already there. Acts 18, it's on page 927 in the Black Bibles under the seats in front of you. And if you're here, new with us, here for the first time, we've been in this uh, sermon series in the book of Acts for some time. We're right in the middle of it. And the book of Acts recounts sort of the early church after the risen Christ ascends to heaven and what the early church actually looks like, looks like. So we're chapters into this story, and the story continues, and there's some hard days ahead. And so if you would remember, over the past few weeks, we have seen Paul travel to four different cities on a missionary journey proclaiming the gospel. Paul going to four different cities on a missionary journey, proclaiming the gospel. And what have we seen happen in the life and ministry of Paul? Sort of to rewind, Paul first, he goes to Philippi. What happens there? We've seen and we've heard that he is beaten. He, in public, is stripped naked of his clothes. And he is shamed and he is shackled and put in prison. It's not a great way to start your missionary journey, but this is what happened to Paul. Then he goes to Thessalonica where he continues preaching. Eventually, though, a mob is formed by the Jews. A riot breaks out and his friends are arrested and Paul gets chased out of the city. Then he goes to Berea. He actually starts to see some gospel fruit there. But what happens? The Jews who ran him out of Thessalonica come over to Berea and they chase him out, harass him, and he's left Berea at that point. Then he eventually, as we heard last week, comes to Athens. He finds his way to Athens and here's a more civilized place where people can reason with you and not strip you naked of your clothes and imprison you and beat you and mock you. Here's a more civilized place where they might reason with you, right? Because Athens is like going to the Oxford or the Harvard of the Roman Empire. These are intellectuals and philosophers and Paul He is a brilliant mind. He's well-learned. He would be able to keep up with those in Athens, right? So this is a place where he should shine. But what do they call this first-rate preacher as he addresses the Areopagus? We heard last week that intelligent, well-learned, brilliant Paul gets called a babbler. Uh, You've got to feel the gut punch that Paul feels at that. 
They call him a babbler, brilliant Paul. They say he's babbling, he's, he's ranting. Here's a man who's been beaten, he's been imprisoned, he's been chased out, and now before the elites of society, the top-ranking figures of the day, he's called a babbler. And it's on the heels of these four cities of Paul's missionary journey, these four grueling cities that he's traveled to and faced opposition that he finally lands this day in Corinth. And that's where we pick up at the beginning of chapter 18, verse 1. It says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Okay, so Paul comes to Corinth and finds these ministry partners in Aquila and Priscilla, who themselves have been kicked out of Italy. The background of that is that they got kicked out also for following Jesus. And not only do they share faith with one another, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, but they also share a common trade, and that's tent making, right? Paul, just to give us some background. Paul, in some instances of his ministry, he got a salary, he got compensated from the church, but at other times, he had to make a judgment call and think, what's best for my ministry, the reception of my ministry here? So at other times, he made his own way by dealing in leather and stitching garments together. That's how he made his way here in Corinth as, as he approached Corinth. Paul, listen, you've got to hear, Paul was willing to do anything for Jesus, to follow Jesus and to proclaim the gospel. He wanted no barrier to stand before his proclamation and the hearing of the gospel. So Paul, he was a man who one minute would be standing with the elites in the public square, reasoning with them about Jesus. And then the very next minute, he may walk over to his booth in the marketplace, get his hands dirty, and stitch together a leather satchel. Uh, that's what Paul was willing to do. He didn't, he didn't have any uh, elitist sense to him. He had no grade or, or class to maintain. Nothing was beneath Paul. He saved himself to preach the gospel no matter what it took. Right? But soon what we see here in Acts 18 is that Timothy and Silas come from Macedonia. And when they come, it says that Paul was occupied with the word. Uh, what does that mean? What does occupied with the word mean? Yes, in one sense, Paul is a Bible man. Right? He, he is occupied. He is studying his word. But the, the actual connotation here that we'll actually see later as Paul looks back is that as Timothy and Silas came here to Corinth, the Macedonian church actually provided him the funds to be able to now devote us full time to the ministry of God's word and proclaiming the gospel to Jews and to Greeks. So he now was freed from tent making and now was able to put all of his time, all of his effort into occupying himself with the word. Okay, so... He is occupied with the word. Uh, Timothy and Silas make that possible, and he's come to Corinth now. Uh, what is Corinth? What kind of a city is Corinth that Paul is now facing? Uh, Corinth is a daunting place to come to. It is an intimidating city to come to. Uh, Corinth was a thriving and successful city. It was booming. It was like a metropolitan city at the center of uh, political, economical, uh, structural, military might. It had culture. It had fashion. It had fame. It was everything you would want in a city. 
Uh, the Corinthians were proud people because their city was great. And it had wealth and it had prestige. They had great pride in their city. But even more notorious than all of those things that Corinth was known for, Corinth was known for being a moral wasteland. For all that they had, Corinth was known to be a moral wasteland. Think of it like the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. What's happened in Corinth would stay in Corinth because you would not want anyone to know what you did in Corinth. In fact, in those days, anytime you found yourself drunk, passed out on the sidewalk, involved in sexual immorality, it became common terminology that people would say to you, you're being a Corinthian. That's how bad and immoral this Corinthian land was. It was full of immorality, full of sin. You got what you wanted, you indulged in what you wanted, and it didn't matter. I want what I want, and that was uh, the city of Corinth. That's where Paul is now coming in after having faced four difficult cities of gospel ministry. In the city of Corinth, to give you an idea of the moral wasteland that it is, in the city of Corinth was this temple built to the goddess, the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of sex and of love. And here, standing high above on this mountain, the temple of Aphrodite, were over 1,000 female slaves. By day, they roamed around the temple, but by night, what happened? They came down to the foot of the mountain, and they would roam the city streets as prostitutes, serving and worshiping their goddess, Aphrodite, as they did their work as prostitutes. This was, this was a sad city. This was an immoral city. And this is a city that God now brings Paul to with the gospel. This was a city that was self-gratifying, didn't care what you had to say. We do what we want. It was a city that would collide head-on with the gospel. I mean, if there was ever a city that the gospel would not land, it would be Corinth. The gospel, how could it ever take root in Corinth? Paul must be wondering, I'm being called after four grueling cities to this city. How will the gospel in this city ever be believed? The path ahead seems very dark for Paul. Uh, for me, growing up, right down the street, actually, when I was a, a teenager, there was this place not too far from here that me and a few friends would call Death Valley. It was this place that had a long, long road. By day, it looked, it looked nice. It looked serene. The path led to a, a beautiful and lush forest. It was off the side of the road, and it looked beautiful by day. But by night, as the sun grew dim and the fog settled in, it looked like a path straight out of a horror film. It was intimidating, and it was, it was foggy and dark, and you did not want to go down this path. And so we named this place Death Valley. We would drive by all the time. And so we, being stupid teenagers who liked to tempt our fate, we would go down this path late at night, around midnight, every once in a while over the summer, aiming to make it all the way down to the end of the path. Because at the end of the path, and this was a long, long path, at the end of the path, you could see a bend that goes off into the forest. And so we would aim to start from the beginning, looking down on this dark valley, looking to walk and hit the bend, eventually just get there. And we tried over and over again. And I have to tell you, I've never even to this day felt as frightened as I have been on those days. I mean, it was, it was crazy. The deers would look like these massive figures who just wanted to devour us in the fog. The slightest breeze would feel ghostly to us, and we would feel chills. 
and you could feel your heart beating out of your chest as us five growing boys, locked arm in arm, would sheepishly move inch by inch closer and closer down the path. We never made it. (laughs) We never made it. We wanted to make it. We tried over and over again. In fact, this past week, I texted my friends and said, we've got to go back to Death Valley. I feel like such a coward. And we never made it because that path, can I tell you, it was the most daunting path I, I ever laid my eyes on. I didn't know what was around the bend. I couldn't tell. I couldn't see what was around the corner. It looked just too daunting from a distance, right? Just the path. But how much more terrifying would it have been if we actually got there and made it to around the bend? Here, Paul is standing at the foot of Corinth, looking over this dark and dangerous place, unable to see what's around the bend, unable to predict what harm will befall him, fearful that no one will ever listen to the message of the gospel. He must be thinking, will this just be a repeat from the other four cities I've just come from? In fact, will it be worse? Because this, this is Corinth. Will it be worse? Will they drag me in? Will they kill me here? If ever a city were to reject the gospel, wouldn't it be this? In fact, when Paul later recounts approaching Corinth in this moment in Acts 18, in, this, in his first letter eventually to the Corinthians that he writes later, this is what Paul says as he approaches the foot of Corinth. When I came to you, I came with weakness. I came with fear and with trembling. That's what he says looking back. That's what I was feeling when I was coming to your city. Paul was scared. In Paul's mind, he was crossing the river before he even got there. Creating storylines in his mind of what Corinth would be that never existed. Don't we all do this? Don't we, don't we imagine into the future what might be and scare ourselves from never even stepping into what we should probably step into? And don't we always do this? Aren't we all sort of guilty of this? Uh, We worry about how that meeting or that dinner or that conversation is going to go before we even get there. Uh, We have our umbrella propped up open today for rain that may happen tomorrow. We anticipate failure even before we set out to do it. And Paul is no different from us. One commentator, R.C. Sproul, says, even Paul, even Paul, Think of that. He's beginning to lose his nerve. And yet in all of this, in all of, the, of his fear, in all of his anxiety, Paul gets up and continues on following Jesus, doing gospel ministry. It says that he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, testifying that the Christ was Jesus. This man, Paul, puts in work, he labors, he sweats, putting all of his energy into proclaiming Jesus Christ to the Jews, to the Greeks. And what is the result? Verse 6 says, they opposed him, they reviled him, and he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. A fifth city, a fifth city, and Paul is reviled. He is opposed. And he shakes his garments off saying, I've done what I could. Your blood is on your heads. 
I wash my hands clean of this. When you hear Paul doing this, I think, at least for me, what I think is that Paul is just trying to be a tough guy, right? He's shaking the garments off of him and washing his hands clean. He's just trying to be a tough guy, and he's gone. He doesn't have time for this. But the reality is that Paul is not trying to be a tough guy. Paul is heartbroken. Paul is heartbroken. Why? Because these are Paul's own people. The Jewish people who are rejecting their Savior, who they waited for, who Paul now knows is the Christ, who has come to save them. This is his people, his flesh and blood, rejecting their Savior, the one who can save their souls. Paul is not merely frustrated here. He's not merely angry here. He is saying these words with tears in his eyes. Paul, shaking his voice shaking as he says, I've done what I could. Your blood is on your hands. This is his family. These are his people. Paul says, to give you a taste of this, Paul says in Romans 9 about his Jewish family, his Jewish people, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Did you hear what Paul says there? Paul says that if he could, if there was a possibility where he himself could be cut off from Christ, trade places with his Jewish brothers and sisters so they might have salvation, and even if it means he doesn't, he would do it. He would cut himself off from Christ for their sake. Because he loves them so deeply. Do you feel that with Paul? This brother is weeping, is shaking as he dusts his garments off and moves out of the synagogue. Do you feel that with Paul? I know I have thought about that with my family, with those who are closest to me, my friends. I've thought about it even in relation to being Indian thinking about people that look like me and talk like me, come from the same land as me, who will never know Jesus. And that does something to your heart. Perhaps you have felt that in different ways. Feel the heartbreak of Paul here. This is his people who will never, who may never know Jesus and taste salvation. So as Paul leaves the synagogue, what happens? Verse 7 says, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Okay, what happens next? Paul is now exiting the synagogue. And as Paul leaves the synagogue and turns and walks into The street, he actually turns right into a house next door to the synagogue. Literally right next door to the synagogue is this man named Titius Justice. And he's a believer. He he, he trusts in the Lord and believes in Jesus. And as Paul is exiting the synagogue, the craziest thing happens. Who is right behind Paul as he leaves? The Jewish ruler of the synagogue that Paul was just preaching at. Crispus, Crispus, a Jewish ruler, actually believes the gospel and he follows Paul out and heads over to Titius Justice's house. 
And by the confession of this Jewish ruler, this synagogue ruler, he's out of a job. And so where else does he go but follow Paul now to to the house next door? And not only Crispus, but his whole family believes. And not only his whole family, but it says that many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and they were baptized. So there is some semblance of fruit for Paul's labor and for his ministry. And yet, in experiencing this, uh, you'd imagine Paul would be moved or inspired or cheer up in light of this. But he doesn't. Uh, Why does he not? Why doesn't the tone change? Because I think he knows that even when this small success has happened through the courses of his ministry, right? Even when a few people have come to believe in in the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ and confess him, from small successes in ministry, it's resulted in great suffering for Paul. Right? Even when Paul's ministry has had success, what has followed for Paul has been suffering and beatings and imprisonment and mocking. And so for Paul here, this becomes, yes, successful in some sense, but it becomes also critical for him. And all the more because now the very ruler of the synagogue believes. So no one's going to ignore that. No one's going to leave that Crispus followed him. Suffering is sure to come to Paul. And in this moment, you've got to think that Paul is asking, is this worth it? I'm in my fifth city. I've got a long road ahead of me. Is this worth it? Is it worth it to continue? Is following Jesus on this grueling path of life, proclaiming the gospel, worth it? I know I'm experiencing some fruit. I can see a little bit. But is it worth it? If my life is marked by pain and by rejection and what feels like a futile gospel effort at times, is it worth it to continue on this course? When I face suffering, when I face rejection, when I face pain, is it worth it? Because I feel like pain is at the doorstep. Even though Paul experiences some success, Jesus sees him. Okay? Paul experiences this. We read that and we'd expect him to rejoice. And yet Jesus sees him and he sees his heart. And he knows what's going on in Paul's heart and in his mind. He knows, Jesus knows, that Paul is ready to tap out and give up. Jesus knows that. So what does Paul need here? Mere words from men? Some platitudes to cheer him up? No. God himself steps in and Jesus miraculously meets Paul in a vision here. It says in verse 9, Lord Jesus said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Can I ask you, what do you imagine is the most frequently repeated command in the Bible? What would you imagine the most frequently used and repeated command is in the Bible? I'd imagine we'd think it's a prohibition or a warning, a do or a don't. Something that would make you feel like, I can't do that or I have to do that. Something more something like a prohibition, right? Uh, It surprised me to realize this week that the most common command given in scriptures by God is 
this, what he says to Paul. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God says over and over again, do not be afraid. Fear not. And why do you imagine God says this so often? Because we are absolutely terrified of living this Christian life all the time. And God knows it. He says it over and over again because he knows our fear. He knows we are terrified of the dark road around us. He knows that we can't see the bend around the corner. He knows that this road that we're walking seems so bleak and it seems so dark. He says over and over again to us, do not be afraid. If you ask Paul, Paul, what are you afraid of? What do you think he'd say? Well, just knowing what has happened to him, I'd imagine he'd say, well, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of pain and I'm afraid of suffering. I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of wondering if I have what it takes, if I'm resilient enough, if my faith is strong enough. I'm afraid of futility in ministry, wondering if anyone will ever believe this, if the gospel has the power to save. I'm afraid of being abandoned, and I'm afraid of being alone in this. Think for a moment and ask yourself, what am I afraid of? What are you afraid of today, in this moment? Be honest for a moment and ask yourself, consider the looming fears that make you want to tap out and get off the path of following Jesus. What fears are in your heart? What causes you to stumble and to, and to get off the path? What fears do you face in this moment today? What questions do you have in your heart and in your mind? Now feel these next words from Jesus as he lifts Paul up. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Anytime God says, do not be afraid in the scriptures, it's not just do not be afraid, get over it. It's always followed by something, something about who he is, his existence, his place in your life. And here, God says, don't be afraid, I am with you. Jesus is with Paul and this changes everything. It changes everything for Paul. Jesus being with us changes everything. Jesus wants to get into Paul's heart, not just his head, not just his intellect, but he wants Paul to hear, Paul, don't be afraid. Keep going. Why? Because I, the Lord Jesus Christ, from heaven is with you. I am with you. It's going to be okay. I am with you. Keep going. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you. And Paul knows this. Hear me. Paul knows this up here. He's Paul. I mean, if anybody knew this, he knows this. Paul knows this. And yet Jesus finds it right to remind even Paul 
who was weary and struck with pain, still healing from the wounds of Philippi, recovering from the embarrassment at Athens, that Paul, I am with you. I am with you, Paul. I've said it before, but John Wesley, on his deathbed, with his family around him, John Wesley, the great theologian of the 18th century, said these last words on his deathbed with his family surrounding him. He said, the best of all, is God is with us. The best of all, God is with us. No matter what comes, God is with us from beginning to the end, on this entire road, from beginning to end, marked with joy and with pain, God is with us. Jesus follows this encouragement with a specific promise of protection. That no one will attack you to harm you, Paul. No one's going to attack you. No one's going to harm you. We've got to hear this and read this and be careful. All right? Because we read this and we may read it as normative for us. Normative for the Christian life. Uh, For some reason in this moment, in this passage, in Paul's story, God has decided to keep harm from Paul while he was in Corinth. That's what his promise is. And later we're going to see that he actually does that. We won't have time to get into it, but later, God actually does that. He does protect Paul from harm. Uh, Last football season, I went to a game where the Eagles were facing the Redskins. I was sitting in the standing room only section in the steps, and I could see the whole thing. And one of the best things, it's ingrained into my mind, one of the best plays I've ever seen in the history of football happened in front of my eyes live before the Redskins. There's this one play that I saw that I'll never forget. The Eagles have the ball. It's third and eight. They're on offense. Wentz takes the snap and is immediately pressured, and all you can see is Washington jerseys pummel him and attack him and get on top of him. That's all you can see. You can't see Wentz at all anymore. The crowd goes silent for a few seconds because they think, all right, fourth down, we're done. Until out of nowhere, you've seen it. You remember this moment. Wentz emerges out of nowhere like Houdini. And he goes for a 40-yard sprint, first down, out of nowhere, emerging out of this pile, a 40-yard sprint. Now, here's what I want you to hear. The pileup and the scrum at the line of scrimmage that Wentz was under, that's what normal Christian life feels like. That's what normal Christian life feels like. Where you're attacked, you feel like there's people on top of you, there's, there's no way out, you're, you're, you're barely making traction, maybe you'll get a yard at best. That's what normal Christian life looks like, where your face is in the dirt, you're bloody and bruised and you barely get a yard out of it. But every now and then, a lane opens up. Every now and again, a lane opens up and you sprint as fast as you can through it. As I heard one preacher put it, this is in a sense the rhythm of living. As Christians, church planting, gospel community, raising children, anything you can think of, mostly scrums with a few sprints every now and then. And yet God graciously, undeservedly does this for Paul. And We'll read later that he keeps him from harm. A city that should eat him alive, Corinth of all cities, God keeps him. Okay, so in this just last section, What has happened? God has given the command to to Paul not to be afraid, to keep doing gospel ministry, that he will protect him from harm. You'd imagine that all of that would be enough for Paul to continue on the course and to encourage him to stay and do gospel ministry in Corinth and beyond. 
but he says one more thing that is absolutely one of the most rejuvenating, emboldening words I've ever read in the scripture to continue the course in doing gospel ministry. It's one of the most wonderful lines in the Bible. Here's what Christ Jesus says to Paul. I'll read the whole passage. Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will harm you or attack you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Keep going, don't be afraid, keep speaking, for I have many in this city who are my people. I don't know if you caught that. I didn't catch it the first time I read it. What is, what is Luke saying here? What is Jesus saying to Paul here? He's saying you want gospel motivation to keep pressing on and proclaiming Jesus? You want gospel-inspired fuel to keep you on this course? How about Jesus saying, I have died for many unrealized sons and daughters in this city. Keep going, Paul. I have shed my blood for many unrealized brothers and sisters of yours, Paul. Keep going. It's as if Jesus is trying to open Paul's spiritual eyes to realize, Paul, I know it looks bleak. I know Corinth is a daunting city. I know it's grueling work where you will endure suffering, doubt your faith, shed your tears. But if you could only see that there are still people yet to be revealed in Corinth, in Philadelphia, as my sons and daughters. If you could only see that, if you could only see that, Paul, you would keep going. One pastor rightly says in response to this that in saying this to Paul, Jesus is urging Paul, I have redeemed them. I have bought them. And I will see to it that they are saved through your witness. I will accomplish what I set out to accomplish through you. I heard another pastor say, think of the fuel for gospel witness when you consider what Jesus has said here. Think of what this could do to your heart, Seven Mile Road. Hear him say to you, Lael, I've got a little one in your home who I've died for. Put time in and win her. Imagine Jesus saying to you, Frank, I've got people in your neighborhood that you will pass by today when you go home in your apartment complex who are mine. Go tell them about me. Mary, there are people who you work with, who you don't know it yet, but who are mine. Keep at it. Keep pressing on. They are mine. There are many in this city, many in this world who are mine. Keep going. Don't be afraid. I will be with you. Don't be silent. I am with you. Stay the course and bring them to me. As the late great preacher Charles Spurgeon has said, the elect, those who God has chosen, don't have yellow stripes on their back. And so I keep preaching. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they are. We, don't, we may not even know their names. And yet, God has saved a people for himself in this world, in this country, in your city, on your block, perhaps even in your homes, that he has yet to save. And perhaps God will use it through your witness. So Seven Mile Road... What do we have? What fuel, what, what motivation do we have this morning to stay the course and to keep trusting in God? This kind of encounter with Jesus puts steel 
in Paul's spine to do ministry in Corinth for what? 18 more months. He sticks it out for 18 more months. And God protected him there like he said he would. God uses a pagan governor to remove him and to protect him for 18 months, setting a precedence for the next 10 to 12 years of gospel ministry where the gospel can move forward legally proclaimed without fear of threat. We know that this encounter that Paul has faced with with Jesus and, and what he has faced even here in Corinth, not being harmed, not being killed or arrested, that's not the norm for Paul, right? And we know looking back now at Paul's life, now that we have the scriptures and his letters, we know what Paul's life actually turned out like. Here's how he describes it in his second letter to the Corinthians. Here's how he describes looking back. I endured several imprisonments, countless beatings, many near to the point of death, lashed with whips, struck with rods, pummeled by stone, three times shipwrecked, once lost at sea, traveling by foot and by boat for well over 10,000 miles, facing danger on water, danger on land, danger by robbers, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger from his own Jewish people, danger from the Gentiles, danger from his own brothers through sleepless nights in starvation and dehydration in cold and in heat. And on top of all of that, the anxiety of making sure these churches that he's pastoring and planting are not falling apart. Paul, says at the end of this section, Paul says, who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is to be made to fall? Am I not indignant? Am I not angry? Am I not weary? So, why stay the course with Jesus and do gospel ministry? Because Jesus is with us. And there are many in the city who are his people. Though we speak and are reviled for this gospel, friends, though Satan seeks to whisper lies into your ears and minds to cause our feet to slip, though this road is marked with suffering and disappointment and pain of every kind, though our bodies are weary, our faith is faint, and when we can't make sense of our pain and our doubts, Though, as the psalmist says, the earth gives way beneath us and the mountains are tossed into the heart of the sea, That we might trust in the one who says, don't be afraid, don't stop speaking, for I am with you. I will protect you, for my people are still in this city. Though, even like Job, we might say, we can lose everything around us along the way and have no earthly reason to go on, but with Job, we would say, though he slay me, I will trust in him. And I will praise the name of the Lord. May that kind of gospel fuel in our hearts push us to stay on the course. To do gospel ministry here and all over the world for the sake of the glory of Christ. For the sake of folks knowing him. Let's pray.